Q&A Holes podcast presents the Sea Report for Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. Okay, awesome. Well, hey. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Sea Report with your host, Mr. C, that's me, uh, coming to you live today on uh, Twitch from QAholespodcast.com. So um, maybe some of y'all are um, wondering what my likeness is doing up here at this time of day on this station. Well, um, we're uh, trying a lot of new things out, as you can see, so I hope everything is going out well. We didn't do any type of formal announcement. This is kind of just like, uh, we're testing things out. We're testing the waters. We have new, uh, production systems that we're equipping at the QA Hole Studios, and so, um, you know, we're just gonna kind of see what happens. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we're gonna be playing with, and then, of course, later on today, we're gonna be having, um, a Magadon special report um, this Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you're tuned in again here at Twitch later on and that you are also tuned in to Spreaker otherwise because you can always catch uh, our shows on Spreaker. Now as far as this C report goes, it is or it should be live on Twitch. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and check that now, but it will also air on Spreaker uh, later on this evening, I promise you, I promise you with all of my heart that we will not uh, edit anything out. Oh, it looks like we might actually be live. Hmm, let's check it out. Now, uh, so, yep, yep, <laughs> we're live. Wow, look at that. Well, what do you know? Live on Twitch. So, anyways, so if you're joining us on Twitch, uh, it looks like it's just one. It might just be myself. That's great. Um, I will strive to look at comments, although what, what we do at the Sea Report, if you do listen to it on um, the uh, Spreaker Network uh, um, with the Q&A Holes podcast, is just, you know, running down of some of the um, it's news commentary, uh, basically is what it is. And then just to look at some of the day's news, mas o menos a day or two, and then, you know, just a little bit of tr uh, commentary. Um, so, and that's just to familiarize some people on Twitch with what we do. Now, if you'd like some more information overall on, you know, what's going on here, uh, then I would su suggest that you go to qandaholespodcast.com and then you can kind of look at uh, what the history of the Q&A Holes podcast is. Uh, it, we were primarily doing um, our business on uh, YouTube, but um, with everything that was going on, um, you know, uh, pre uh you know, inauguration, false flag day, um, everything that was going on there. Um, basically we ended up switching over to Twitch because we were always being put in YouTube jail. We were always being censored. And then finally we got banned off of YouTube. So now we are doing our business here on Twitch. So Anyways, that's just a little bit, bit of a rundown on that. We're working on other uh, programs also through QA Holes Podcast. So if you're all about it, then go ahead and join us here on Twitch. And if you were a YouTube subscriber or if you are a lost QA Hole supporter, please find your way back. <laughs> to the realm. We are still here. We are still live and kicking and we're still working on more things to come. So we'll see what's up. So let me try and navigate myself, my, my way around this system real quick. Okay. I think, I think this is, I think this is good. I don't know what could possibly happen here. I don't, um, I mean, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Okay. So, all right. So, Let's go ahead and jump into the news because that's what we're here for and it's almost dinner time and, you know, and then we're going to get back uh, into some action. Um, okay, so Trump leads here at the Sea Report. So, uh, first article we have here for you guys is from The Hill. Trump lashes out after Supreme Court decision on his financial records. Former President Trump on Monday lashed out after the Supreme Court declined to block the Manhattan District Attorney from obtaining his financial records, blasting the probe as political 
intrinsically motivated and pledging to fight on. The Supreme Court never should have let this fishing expedition happen, but they did, Trump said in a statement. And let me go ahead and share. There we go. And that's what I was looking for. Okay, cool. Uh, So that's what Trump said in a statement. This is something which has never happened to a president before. It is all Democrat-inspired in a totally Democrat location, New York City and state, completely controlled and dominated by a heavily reported enemy of mine, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Let's focus on Daddy Trump. There we go. Trump described the Manhattan investigation into his financial dealings as a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in the history of our country, referring broadly to repeatedly investigating into his alleged wrongdoing. I will fight on just as I have for the last five years, even before I was successfully elected, despite all of the election crimes that were committed against me, Trump added. We will win. The Supreme Court earlier Monday declined to block Trump, uh, Trump's financial records after the former president filed a request in October after losing several rounds in the lower courts in his fight against Manhattan District Attorney Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. The justices issued the order issued without comment or noted dissents. Vance's office has sought Trump's record since 2019, when a New York grand jury issued a subpoena to Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA, for eight years of the former president's personal and business tax returns and other financial records. Vance's office is looking into payments made to silence two women who alleged they had affairs with Trump, including adult film star Stormy Daniels. Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, who pleaded guilty to bank fraud, tax fraud, and campaign finance law violations, has said the payments were made in order to influence the outcome of 2016 presidential election. Additionally, Vance's office has said its subpoena is part of an investigation into possible financial crimes by the Trump organization. Trump's statement responding to the ruling bemoaned the practice of headhunting among prosecutors and attorneys general in which they target political figures in the other party and campaign on a promise to do so. So, just as I was uh, talking about uh, recently in a C report on air, um, that's something that Trump was gonna have. He's gonna have to go through the courtroom gambit now. It's gonna be uh, just probably a series of people throwing all types of um, you know legal issues at him and suing him for everything. You'll probably eventually uh, get down to I don't know snowflakes or something suing Trump because he hurt his feelings. Four year, he hurt their feelings four years ago whenever he talked about, you know, uh, pink hats and, and grabbing them and stuff like that. So we'll see what's up with that. But, you know, Trump does stay in the news now. Uh, you guys may have heard recently about some Supreme Court ruling decisions that have been made in regards to uh, the presidential election lawsuits. So let's go ahead and take a little bit of time on that. The Supreme Court says... This is from the Epic Times. Supreme Court dismisses slew of 2020 presidential election lawsuits. The Supreme Court threw out a series of legal challenges on February 22nd to voting processes and results in several states left over from their recent presidential election cycle. The high court didn't explain why it refused to hear the cases, but three justices dissented from the the decision to hear one of the cases from Pennsylvania. On January 11th, with Inauguration Day just over a week away, the High Court denied requests from the litigants, President Donald Trump, Republicans, and Trump supporters, to expedite several of the lawsuits which concern the presidential election held in the battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The court, as its custom, didn't explain why it dismissed the emergency application seeking to fast-track the lawsuits. President Biden, a Democrat, was inaugurated on January 20th alongside Vice President Kamala Harris after Congress voted January 7th to reject objections by senators and representatives challenging electoral college votes from disputed votes won narrowly by Biden. 
That vote took place after a breach of the U.S. Capitol hundreds, by hundreds of protesters delayed the certification process four hours. Some of the lawsuits challenged the election results on the basis of allegedly unconstitutional changes made to state election procedures. Article 2 of the United States Constitution states that each state shall appoint electors for president and vice president in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. Litigants pointed out that the legislative power here is plenary, meaning unqualified and absolute. State officials, they say, aren't allowed to modify election procedures without the consent of the legislator. One of the now-dismissed appeals, Republican Party of Pennsylvania v. DeGraffin-Reed Court Files 205042 and 20-574, was originally known as Republican Party of Pennsylvania. Bookvar, but then respondent Kathy Bookvar, resigned as Pennsylvania's Secretary of State and was replaced by Veronica DeGraffin-Reed. The case dealt with the perceived overreach of the state Supreme Court when it unilaterally changed election rules without the consent of the state legislature. The GOP argued in its petition that important questions of federal law were implicated by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's 4-3 decision extending the General Assembly's election day received by deadline and mandating a presumption of timeliness for non-postmarked ballots. This is the case in which Justice Samuel Alito ordered on November 6th, three days after Election Day, that all ballots received by mail after 8 p.m. on November 3rd be segregated, away from the other voter ballots. Justice Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch dissented from the Supreme Court's decision not to hear the appeal. On February 22nd, Alito wrote in his dissent, joined by Gorsuch, that the case presents an important and recurring constitutional question, whether the elections or electors clauses of the United States Constitution are violated when a state court holds that a state constitutional provision overrides a state statute governing the manner in which a federal election is to be conducted. That question has divided the lower courts and our view at this time would be greatly beneficial. In his dissent, Thomas expressed frustration, writing that the court failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we gain, we again fail to provide clear rules for future elections. Another now dismissed appeal, Kelly v. Pennsylvania, Court File 20-810, was brought by Representative Mike Kelly, Republican of Pennsylvania, a strong Trump supporter who challenged Biden's victory in the Keystone State. Kelly had asked the Supreme Court to consider his lawsuit, which challenged mail-in voting policies in his home state of Pennsylvania. Kelly argued that Act 77, the 2019 state statute that authorized universal no-excuse mail-in voting, violated the Constitution. Although support for challenging electoral college results evaporated in Congress after the breach of the Capitol, Kelly held firm, objecting to the certification of the Pennsylvania electors early on January 7th. The challenge failed. The Supreme Court... The Supreme Court denied another petition from Pennsylvania, Donald J. Trump for President versus de Graffenried, Court File 20-8045. Brookvar was originally listed as the respondent. Trump campaign attorney John C. Eastman of Anaheim, California, told the Epic Times in mid-January that he still held hope the nation's highest court would take the case because it concerned important issues. There is a well-recognized exception to mootness called capable of repetition yet evading review, he said at the time. It is invoked quite frequently in election litigation, as oftentimes the issues are as applicable to the next election as to the current one. Our legal issue, whether non-legislative election and judicial officials in the state have the ability to ignore or alter state election law in manner of choosing presidential electoral violates Article 2 of the United States Constitution, remains important and in need of the court's review. 
Another dismissed case was Wood v. Raffensperger, court filed 2799, brought by Trump supporter and lawyer L. Lynn Wood against Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Wood argued that Raffensperger, a Republican, usurped the plenary authority of the Georgia legislature by entering into a settlement agreement with the Democrat Party earlier this year and issuing an official election bulletin that modified the legislature's clear procedures for verifying the identity of mail-in voters. The March 2020 settlement with the Democrat Party of Georgia and the Democrat Senatorial Campaign Committee and the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee violated voters' rights by setting forth totally different standards to be followed by a poll worker processing absentee ballots in Georgia. A case from Arizona, Ward v. Jackson, court file 20-809, was also dismissed. That lawsuit, brought by Arizona GOP Chief Kelly Ward, claimed that the lower courts hadn't allowed sufficient time to those challenging the state's election results. In this case, the lower courts allowed only two full days of inspection and discovery into the validity of the presidential election in Arizona, in which 3,333,829 ballots were cast. A case from Michigan, King v. Whitmer, court file 20-815, was dismissed. The petition stated that there were widespread voter irregularities and fraud in the state of Michigan in the processing and tabulating of votes and absentee ballots, and the ritual court completely and utterly ignored the dozens of affidavits, testimonials, expert opinions, diagrams, and photos that supported the petitioner's claim. A case from Wisconsin, Trump v. Biden, court file 20-882, was also dismissed. The Trump campaign challenged a ruling by the Wisconsin Supreme Court that allegedly violated Article 2 of the Constitution by upholding the, court, the counting of 50,125 absentee ballots cast in two counties pursuant to the decision of election officials to ignore or circumvent state statutes requiring that absentee ballots be delivered only by mail or by hand, delivering to the clerk. So you have this situation going on here again, uh, you know, the court gamut being run for Trump post and pre um, presidential coup um, on January 20th, when the Biden illegitimate administration sealed the deal with the inauguration. But um, indeed, you know, you have, as it mentioned, uh, some some of the Supreme Court justices as uh, Thomas Clarence speaking out or Clarence Thomas speaking out in regards to, um, you know, not being well, not being happy that they decided to throw these out without hearing the appeal first. But of course, there's a lot of rabbles to rouse when it comes to the Supreme Court, because there was even um the betrayal of like uh, 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 Kavanaugh and um, Kavanaugh and uh, Barrett, you know, as well as uh, what the heck is going on with Supreme Court Justice Roberts, right? Well, more is to be uh, told in that regard um, because um, what we're told is Supreme Court Justice and Scotusgate. That would be that. Scotusgate is fast approaching. Now, continuing with the news, uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, we have Miss Jen Sake in the news here. Let's see if we have a, a photo for you guys. Oh, that's not Jen Sake. Who is that? There's Jen Saki. Here's Miss Jen Saki. Oh, wait, wrong one. Okay, Jen Saki. Okay, so now in this uh, article brought to you from The Federalist, Jen Saki admits school COVID funds are for paying teachers later, not getting kids in the classroom. So what is up with that? Um, we see that uh, they're going to be what having another what trillion dollars worth of um, several tr trillion dollars worth of uh, spending going for COVID relief, uh, going all around the world, going to God knows where to you know 
we don't even know what illegal agencies. I know people are reading through the bill right now, but uh, what are we? What are the American people to get? We're probably not going to get much of anything uh, by the time this is all said and done. With Biden will have walked back even the fourteen hundred dollars. Um, he'll probably ask for us to pay back the six hundred dollars that Trump gave us. <coughs> I would not be surprised if that were the case. But now we have them. We have the main fight here being getting kids back in school. Like, um, kids need to be back in school. They need the social. They need the educational. They need all of the above. You know, they need the herd uh, immunity. Ha. But, like, um, now we have what? Uh, first thing that Miss Jen Saki will circle back to it, um, reported was that we will have school one day a week. And then her boss went on stage and during a town hall with um, uh, CNN said that that was a misreport and that, that they'll probably get, you know, more going back sooner than that. Um, so let's see what it says here now. Um, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki admitted that most of the federal funds designated for schools and other educational institutions in the Biden administration COVID-19 bill will not be spent in 2021. Ah, Miss Saki. During a press briefing on Monday, one reporter pressed Saki on how the money set aside for education in the American Rescue Plan would be used to help reopen schools. A CBO analysis suggestion that only a small portion of the 130 billion dollars for schools would actually be spent in the current fiscal year. What exactly is the White House doing to set ensure that money would actually mean that schools could potentially open to March and April before the academic year ends? A reporter asked. Saki, however, was unbothered with the fact that much of the money in the bill would be left unspent on a return to in-person learning. Instead, the press secretary argued that those funds would be better used to ensure that schools could pay teachers, reinforcing the Biden administration's affection for prioritizing teachers and teachers' unions over students' learning interests. A big part of the challenge here for a number of schools is that they need, in order to operate responsibly and given the threat of budget cuts, they need to obligate funds according to spending plans rather than exhausting all balances as soon as they're received, she explained. So the challenge here is, how do they plan ahead? Well, we will circle back to it. Just kidding. She says they can hire if they need to hire additional teachers now for smaller class sizes, or if they need to hire bus drivers, or if they need to hire, they need to do improvements to their facilities. They will want to be able to know, understandably, just like any business or company, that they will be able to employ teachers next year and the years ahead. So that's why this funding is so essential, is because they need to be able to plan ahead so that they can make the improvements now and do the hiring now. Now, as a side note from this article, that was not my stammering and jibber-jabbering and yammering as I was reading over Miss Circleback Saki's statement. That is a transcription of her spoken word. Okay, back to the article. Saki's comments come nearly after $1 trillion of Congress's previous coronavirus spending funds are still sitting unused. Okay, quick breakaway again. $1 trillion of their spending is sitting unused. And they couldn't even push that through to the American people. $1,400? $600? They couldn't even just maybe do another $2,000? I mean, if you have a trillion dollars of unused spending, what I'm wondering at this point is, I'm like, why couldn't Biden pass, you know, $50,000 to people? I don't have a student loan, mind you. I don't have a student loan. But if you have $1 trillion that's sitting still unused, and here we are already pushing March, may as well give it to all of the little people that need little snowflakes, not people, (laughs) that need their college tuition paid off. 
I don't care. It'll make them happy. And then maybe, you know, we can all be productive. Okay. So getting back to this one $100 million authorization in the CARES Act, which granted federally funded school resources for cleaning and disinfecting, as well as assistance in counseling and distance learning, was also left untouched as schools around the United States kept their doors closed in exchange for virtual learning. So they have $100 million worth of taxpayer money sitting unused that could have been used to disinfect schools. Um, Because airplanes do such a good job of disinfecting everything. If they can do it and then they can squeeze, I don't know, 150 people into a toothpaste tube size aircraft. I don't see why they couldn't have taken $100 million. I don't see why they couldn't have taken $300 million of this CARES Act and used it to disinfect schools and, you know, put, uh, put, uh, put plastic, you know, siding around each desk in the class. I mean, if they can do it in South Park, they can do it here. I mean, Come on. All right, Miss Saki. I'm tired of looking at your face. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, guys. I, I failed to show you the face of Raffensperger. That's who this guy, this little mole man was here. I was like, oh, who's that? Raffensperger. Yeah. Oh, and then there's just Miss Jen Babushka wearing head Saki. Saki. And then there's her frowning face. Okay. Oh, oh, who's that? <laughs> Who is, this is the face only a mother could love. I apologize if you're listening on Spreaker and you can't see this beautiful face. Oh, wait, no, not that face. Wait, where'd it go? There we go. This face. This is the face of incoming assistant AG Nicholas McQuaid. Now, if you were to see that face, wouldn't you think that that face was a face that would hang out with like, Hunter Biden or something like that. That's what I would think looking at that face. I'd be like, oh, that's one of the Biden Biden bros right there. That is one of the Biden bros. Well, wouldn't you know, that is one of the Biden bros because this guy here, who is an incoming assistant to the attorney general, he used to work in the law office of an attorney that will be representing Hunter Biden in upcoming federal investigations. Did you hear that? This beautiful mug of a man right here. He will be the um, incoming assistant attorney general. And hot off of the job, January 20th, last day employed, January 20th with a fellow who will be representing Hunter Biden in upcoming federal investigations. Let's just get to the news. This is from Just the News. It says yeah. Justice says incoming assistant A.G. McQuaid got ethics training when asked about Hunter Biden case. Top GOP senators are asking the Justice Department... Here, let me do a favor. (laughs) Top GOP senators are asking the Justice Department whether new acting assistant attorney general Nicholas McQuaid will be involved in the federal investigation into Hunter Biden's tax records and if McQuaid's previous job at a law firm connected to the president's son poses a conflict of interest. Hmm. I don't know, guys. What do you think? In a February 3rd letter to the Justice Department... Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson pointed out McQuaid was employed at Latham and Watkins until January 20th and say he worked with fellow firm attorney Christopher Clark, whom Hunter Biden reportedly hired to work on his federal criminal case a month before Father Joe Biden's inauguration as United States president. Pause. So, guys. We can see clearly here is another example of the revolving door of criminal behavior that happens between the um, White House and also law firms, uh, other firms and organizations that are under federal statute. Like, this is just insane. Um, This guy, 
January 20th, last day working at that law firm that is representing Hunter Biden, is now coming in as the assistant AG for the United States under the illegitimate um, illegitimate administration of Joe Biden. Illegitimate Joe himself, hashtag illegitimate Joe. Let's get it rolling. Now back to the article. It is unclear what role, if any, Mr. McQuaid has in the Hunter Biden case, or whether he has any access to the case, wrote Grassley of Iowa and Johnson of Wisconsin. Johnson of Wisconsin, I love it. As a general matter, all government employees must avoid situations that create even the appearance of impropriety and impartiality so as to not affect the public. Now, we know that. We understand that. Like, that is a no-duh factor. That's uh, common ethics in, in law, I would think. I never took law, but I know about ethics, right? So, if you have this going on here, you would think that, yeah, McQuaid's gonna, you know, recuse himself. Uh, well, let's hope they even carry the case on at all, right? They also cite a section of the department's ethics guide that states, no employee shall participate in a criminal investigation if he has a personal or political relationship with anybody or group um with any anybody or group substantially involved in the conduct that is the subject of the investigation or prosecution or any person or group that he knows has a specific and substantial interest that would be directly affected by the outcome of the investigation or the prosecution. Yes, so that's exactly what we just said. That's to the point. They also point out that President Biden select, recently issued an executive order on ethics that imposes similar requirements that include including a requiring for prosecutors to inform their supervisors of a possible conflict of interest. The senators also ask seven questions specific to their concerns. The Justice Department responded Friday, two days after the senator's January 17th deadline, in a brief statement that says McQuaid has received ethics and professional responsibility training. The letter also states McQuaid signed an ethics pledge required in Biden's executive order. Because after all, Biden is going to fire you on the spot if you are unethical. Um, however, the letter does not appear to answer all of Grassley or Johnson of Wisconsin's questions, including whether McQuaid has been recused specifically from the Biden case and or other whether has access to the case files. That's something else that you need to keep in mind as well. The acting assistant attorney general is screened and recused for matters in which she has financial interest or personal business relationship, including matters involving his former law firm. The letter reads, The Justice Department, as of early Monday evening, did not respond to requests from Just the News to clarify McQuaid's disposition in the case. Grassley's office said the senators and relevant staffers would be unavailable to respond until later because they were involved in confirmation hearings. And Johnson's office could not be reached either. Biden has acknowledged being under investigation by federal prosecutors in Delaware over the tax matter. The New York Post reports the probe is related to his business ventures in Ukraine and China. Clark, a partner at Latham and Watkins, worked together with McQuaid on multiple cases and shared clients, according to a report by Axios. So that's pretty interesting there if you think about that, what's going on with these... Uh, uh, revolving doors. So, uh, you know, uh, Biden's uh, son-in-law will make some money off of COVID. Um, Biden's son Hunter will get off um, with whatever uh, this McQuaid guy might be investigating over there. And uh, then we'll see uh, if he can get taken care of in regards to his Hunter, to his uh, China and Ukraine issues as well. We'll see. You never know what could happen. You never know what could happen. So while you have this issue going on here <clears throat> with an incoming uh, assistant AG under President-elect Biden. You also have some other issues going on. Um, you have uh, some. Um, you have some. Uh, you have some uh, GOP lawmakers seeking Biden to not have an incoming uh, nomination with 
to have it withdrawn. This comes from Alex Nieberg, Nitzberg, sorry, GOP lawmakers asked President Biden to withdraw nomination of Xavier or Javier Becerra for health secretary post. Um, 11 GOP senators, let's see, do we have Becerra here with us today? Oh, there he is. Here's Mr. Becerra here. He's a little easier on the eyes, but not my type at all. All right. Um, <laughs> and yep, yeah, we're good here. Okay, cool. Uh, let's see here. It says um, 11 GOP senators and dozens of Republican House members signed onto a letter asking President Biden to withdraw the nominations of California Attorney General Javier Becerra. Becerra to serve in the role of GOP Health and Human Services Secretary. Mr. Becerra's lack of healthcare experience, enthusiasm for replacing private health insurance with government-run Medicare for all, and embrace of radical policies on immigration, abortion, and religious liberty render him unfit for any position of public trust, and especially for HHS secretary, the letter to Biden says. Becerra, a Democrat who has previously served in the United States um, House of Representatives, will need 51 votes to secure Senate confirmation to the health secretary post. All right. So that's just a quick news on some wheelings and dealings that are going on in Washington, D.C. Let's see what else is happening in Washington, D.C. Oh, who's this guy here? Let's get a close up on this man. Bom, bom, bom. This is the governor of Virginia. Now, also coming by way of Washington, D.C., repeal of Virginia's death penalty headed to governor's desk. State lawmakers gave final approval Monday to a bill that will end capital punishment in Virginia, a dramatic turnaround for a state that has executed more people in its history than any other. So we know recently that um, uh, the death penalty has been in the news and we know a lot of um, legislators are scrambling to get the death penalty removed or taken away. As we know, in the Trump administration under the Trump era, the death penalty was brought back against a lot of naysayers. I wonder why they are um, afraid of the death penalty. Hmm. Let's bring this face back only a mother could love. All right, the legislation repealing the death penalty now heads to Democrat Governor Ralph Northam, who has said he will sign the measure into law, making Virginia the 23rd state to stop executions. Virginia's Democrat majority in control of the General Assembly for a second year pushed the repeal effort, arguing that the federal that arguing that the death penalty has been applied disproportionately to people of color the mentally ill, and the indigent. Republicans raised concerns about justice for victims and their family members and said there are some crimes that are so heinous that the perpetrators deserve to be executed. Both House and Senate approved separate repeal bills earlier this month. On Monday, the Senate approved the House bill, advancing it to Northam on a 22-16 vote. Republican Senator Jill Vogel joined with Democrats in the chamber in voting for passage. The House was expected to vote on the Senate version later this day. Historically, Virginia has used the death penalty more than any other state, executing nearly 1,400 people since its day as a colony, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. Since the United States Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty in 1976, Virginia, with 113 executions, is second only to Texas. Only two men remain on Virginia's death row. Anthony Juniper was sentenced to death in 2004, slayings to the 2004 slayings of his ex-girlfriend, two of her children, and her brother. Thomas Porter was sentenced to die for the 2015 killing of a Norfolk police officer. The repeal legislation would convert their sentences to life in prison without parole. All right, so that's what's going on. Oh, hey, hey, hey. That's what's going on here in... Actually, I haven't been on. That's what's going on here in uh, Virginia. We have the death... <coughs> death... 
death sentence being repealed. Okay, sorry. I was a bit a uh, bit distracted there. Okay, so let me take a second here to break uh, from what's going on. Now, we are broadcasting live on Twitch. You are watching the C-Report from Q&A Holes podcast. had a note come in there that uh, kind of uh, distracted me. But yeah, so I hope any of you guys who are tuning in are enjoying what's going on here. Otherwise, I do hope if you tune in to the rebroadcast that you enjoy what's going on. But um, we're going to go ahead and keep pushing on here. We have a few more news items before we wrap up the C report for today. And then we will be back again on Twitch live with um, um, a special report from Magadon. So you want to make sure that you tune in again. That's going to be at 9 p.m. Eastern time here on Twitch. If you're not subscribed to us, subscribe to us and make sure that you click on the subscription so you can get notified, get notified with Q&A Holes podcast of when we have live reports coming on because like today we're running the C report live and we're also kind of simulcasting it it'll be uh, it'll be up on Spreaker later on this evening for all of you podcast heads out there but I don't know I mean I just said hey you know, I was talking with W the other day and he said, hey, let's just try it. So we're just going to try it and see what happens. And so far, you know, um, it's 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 going through. Um, there will probably be a few incarnations of the C report before we get it down and we decide exactly what we're going to do with it. But till then, we hope you are enjoying what we're doing with Q&A Holes Podcast dot com. Make sure you stop in there as well. Now, getting back to the news, because that's what we're here for on the C-Report. What we just talked about, um, I still got his face up there. The governor of Virginia there. Uh, let's get his face off the screen. I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> I almost forgot what I was doing here. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk about New Jersey now. Now, you know, New Jersey does have a lot of... Um, oh, there's Daddy Trump. Sorry about that. New Jersey does have a lot of scandal going on with the governor. What with uh, the governor? Governor of New Jersey, um, that would be uh, Governor Phil Murphy, um, having been one of the five killer governors to sign a mandate requiring COVID positive patients to go into nursing homes, thereby killing. We see in uh, this case of Governor Cuomo, Killer Cuomo had 15,000 families affected, 15,000 deaths due to that same mandate that the governor of uh, New Jersey had signed into effect. But let's see if the governor of New Jersey, if new governor, uh, Governor Murphy had a plan, because here's what's going on now in New Jersey. Quick on the heels of that mandate, what's Mr. Governor doing? He's legalizing it. New Jersey governor signs law to legalize marijuana use and decriminalize possession. So, I, I mean, he's a smart man. You know, Governor Murphy sends probably thousands of people to his death when he mandates, um, you know, he mandates uh, COVID-positive patients to go into nursing homes, thereby to the detriment, to the lethal detriment of thousands of people across the state. And he legalizes marijuana to get popular opinion back. I bet you money. Let's see. We should follow this story, but let's see. This story comes from CNBC. Legislation to set up a reconcil... A recre legislation to set up a recreational marijuana marketplace, decriminalize cannabis, and loosen penalties for underage possession of the drug and alcohol was signed into law Monday by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy more than three months after voters overwhelmingly approved a ballot question to legalize adult use of the drug. Honestly, he took it a couple of steps further. The Democrat-led Assembly and Senate passed the last-minute measure Monday to ease penalties on underage possession of both alcohol and marijuana as a way to secure Democrat Governor Phil Murphy. And that's Mr. Murphy right there. Let's go ahead and get a close-up on Mr. Murphy to uh, Democrat Phil Murphy's signature on legislation they had sent him in December. 
Murphy faced a deadline to act on the December measures. He had earlier said he backed the legislation but delayed signing them for more than two months amid concerns that young people of color could still face arrests, running afoul of his goal of undoing the effects of the war on drugs in black communities. The governor had declined to detail why he delayed, but said he wants to be sure that young people, particularly of color, don't get tangled up in our criminal justice system. <laughs> oh, pardon me. I apologize. <laughs> That's not what I was trying to do. Uh, the bill that passed Monday amounted to a linchpin to getting amounted to a linchpin to getting the governor's support, according to lawmakers. The legislation makes underage possession of alcohol and marijuana subject to a written warnings that escalate to include parental notification and a referral to community service upon subsequent violations. Currently, underage drinking is punishable by a fine of up to $1,000 and up to six months in jail. Part of the legislation makes it so towns will no longer have to the authority to enact ordinances with civil penalties or fines concerning underage possession or consumption violations on private property, among other measures. It also increases the liability for suppliers of cannabis items to underage people by making a third or subsequent violation a petty disorderly person's offense. The impasse of over a marijuana stems from a November ballot question amending the Constitution to permit recre recreational cannabis for those 21 and over that voters approved by a 2 to 1 margin. The delay has sparked widespread frustration. This process has been a debacle from the beginning. The voters did their job. <laughs> Democrat Senator Paul Sarlo said he had opposed marijuana legislation, though was supportive of decriminalization. He voted to pass the bill Monday because he said voters want lawmakers to move on a more focus of COVID-19 relief. Edmund DeVoe, the head of the New Jersey Cannabis Association, said lawmakers and the governor get the legislation enacted. Enough already. Only in New Jersey could the will of the voters be so callously ignored, he said in a statement. Some Republicans seemed aghast at reducing penalties. There's no consequence, GOP Senator Bob Singer said. We're now saying if you're caught with it underage, it's a free pass. Democrat bill sponsor Senator Nicholas uh, Scutari, also a municipal prosecutor, disputed that the current that the currently penalties work and said the law the new law will keep young people, particularly black youngsters, out of the criminal justice system. Why they got to be black who smoking weed? You know, Senator Nicholas Scutari. I don't know. I mean, I guess. I don't know the statistics in New Jersey, but that sounds awfully snowflakish to me. The marketplace legalization bill applies the state 6.2. <clears throat> the marketplace legalization bill applies the state's 6.625% sales tax, with 70% of the proceeds going to the areas disproportionately affected by marijuana-related arrests. Black residents will likelier up to three times as much face marijuana charges compared to white residents. Towns can levy a tax of up to 2% under the measure. Also, under the bill, the Cannabis Regulatory Commission will be able to levy an excise tax, the amount of which will depend on the cost per ounce of cannabis. There will be four levels of tax under the bill. So if cannabis is $350 or more, the tax per ounce will be $10. That rises to $60 per ounce if the retail price of the product is less than $250. The number of licenses for cultivators will be set at $37 for two years. The state Senate was pushing for no limits, but the assembly wanted the caps. The, criminal, the decriminalization measure is necessary because the state's laws make possession a crime, despite the voter-approved amendment, according to lawmakers. The measure passed with broad bipartisan support. 
very interesting very interesting indeed so you can see they are making um marijuana legal in um new jersey and that is to include recreational use of the drug I don't know about that, uh, you know, making it uh, decriminalizing, well, not decriminalizing, but making it a little bit, you know, lowering the penalties on alcohol abuse for minors, but it's whatever, um, you know, it's your body, your choice. All right. So everything is going up in smoke here at Q&A Holes Podcast and the C Report. I hope you guys enjoyed the C Report for February 20, what are we, the 23rd today, 2021. And uh, we'll be signing off here for today. Don't forget, do make sure that you visit the Q&A Holes Podcast. Actually, let's go ahead and go ahead and check that out right now. Make sure you visit QAholespodcast.com. That is uh, QAholespodcast.com where you can keep up with QA Holes Podcast. We have, um, yes, we are now live on Twitch. We have um, podcasts coming out on Wednesday and Saturday nights. You can call in. Um, I think our phone lines are up currently. We'll have to, we'll check, you know, every show if you'd like to call in and talk a bit about politics and uh, whatever's going on with us. In current events mode, you know, we're always uh, willing to chat with our um, with our audience. Um, go ahead and check out the, the podcast. You can see we have also uh, Q&A Holes News Break with Joe One of Two, Monday through Friday. The C Report is also Monday through Friday. Today was a special day. We're doing the C Report live here on Twitch just to kind of see what happens. We will be doing a live report with Magadon today at 9 p.m. Eastern time. So if you're on Twitch and if you're not with us, do make sure you join us. Uh, get your notifications here on Twitch with Q&A Holes Podcast. Otherwise, we will see you guys on the flip side. This is Mr. C for the C Report signing out. And, um, well, make sure you get back with us at 9 p.m. tonight on Twitch.com. Otherwise, check us out at QAholespodcast.com. Y'all have a good one. We'll see you next time. Thank you.